Hi, this is JP Mac, and welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. Okay, this week we're going to discuss the recent election of Giorgia Maloney as Prime Minister of Italy. Giorgia Maloney is a member of her country's Brotherhood of Italy party, and it's been labeled as far-right and even as fascist. She's been described as a an heir to Benito Mussolini and of course her being on the right uh, these comparisons are inevitable um, but of course uh, the question is are they accurate and so we're going to take a look at that now and uh, so you can uh, see for yourself I think you're gonna have um, I think you're gonna know pretty soon if you haven't already suspected that maybe these uh, labels are a little bit off. Right. So there's an article in the uh, Christian Post. It's by Ryan Foley and it's he's uh, his article is New Italian Prime Minister vows to protect God, family, country as media tie her to fascism. Uh, the left is, in the mainstream media are desperate for you to believe that Italian Prime Minister-elect Giorgia Maloney is a fascist. She personifies a growing populist rejection of woke ideology and globalism. And here are portions of an article from uh, aforementioned Christian Post. Okay, it starts out, uh, Italy has elected Giorgia Maloney, its first female prime minister, who's focused on protecting the institution of the family and national identity has caused some media outlets to compare her ideology to fascism. The 45-year-old Maloney, the leader of the Brotherhood of Brothers of Italy party, is slated to become Italy's next prime minister after her party won 26% of the vote in Sunday's Italian general election. Uh, the article continues a little farther down. The politician supporters see her as committed to upholding the values of God, family, and country as European leaders increasingly embrace cosmopolitan and secular values of supranational supranational organizations like the European Union and as opposed to individual nation-states. However, mainstream media outlets have tied Maloney and her party to fascism. As a as conservative political commentator Ann Coulter pointed out, a New York Times article used the word fascist or fascism 28 times when discussing the possibility of a Maloney victory. The New York Times article published Saturday stated that Maloney's proposals characterized by protect protectionism, tough on crime measures, and protecting the traditional family have, have a continuity with the post-fascist parties, though updated to excoriate LGBT lobbies and migrants. Coulter also reported that 
In the years following World War II, the Italian left assigned the fascist label to any range of political enemies until the term was drained of much of its meaning. And indeed, uh, that can be said to be the case. Uh, the term fascism is used promiscuously, uh, particularly by the left. Um, it's used wrongfully, and it's out of its historical context. And it's almost completely been divorced from its original historical meaning. The meaning of the part, the state being supreme. You know, nothing outside the state, everything within the state, nothing against the state. That was the actual fascist credo. Uh, but since then, the word, at least in leftist circles, has come to mean anything that they don't like. And so, this article here is going to discuss a little bit um, about that. The 45-year-old firebrand insists she is no fascist, just a proud conservative and nationalist, comfortable nonetheless with some of the hallmarks of Italian fascism, like this motto, God, Fatherland, and Family, CBS's Chris Lively reported. So then, uh, a little farther down the article. Uh, the victory has made Ms. Maloney, uh, all right, well, let me back up Chuck a little bit. Um, they quoted uh, Alberto Migdardi, a professor of history and political thought at IULM University in Milan, and Nicola Rossi, a professor of political economy at Tor. Brigada University in Rome, contend that there is no risk of authoritarianism in Italy's future under Maloney. And they explain, the victory has made Ms. Maloney, 45, the object of widespread international perplexity and even abuse. She has been portrayed as the heir of Benito Mussolini and the harbinger of a new fascism. They wrote in an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. Yet, whatever Italian democracy's many faults, it isn't toppling, and it, it, there is no risk of authoritarianism. Miss Maloney, a career politician, has been vocal in defending Parliament's prerogatives against encroachments by the executive branch. So, it appears they have a similar situation in Italy as we do here. Um, under the Biden regime, uh, taking a lot of liberties, uh, are acting in a very authoritarian manner, and the Republicans uh, continually uh, push back against this overreach uh, against the uh, on behalf of the executive branch, on behalf of the Biden administration, and so they have a, a similar situation there in Italy, where. Uh, Miss Maloney believes that uh, the government, the executive portion of the, their government, has encroached and and exceeded their authority in some cases. Maloney has elaborated on her philosophy in multiple speeches over the past few years. In a speech at the World Congress of Families in 
2019, she asked, why is the family an enemy? Why is the family so frightening? There is a single answer to all these questions, she suggested, because it defines us, because it is our identity, because everything that defines us is now an enemy for those who would like to, us to no longer have an identity and to simply be perfect consumer slaves. Maloney lamented what she viewed as attacks on national identity, religious identity, gender identity, and family identity. She expressed concern that I can't define myself as Italian, Christian, woman, mother, but instead must define my, herself as citizen X, gender X, parent one, parent two. I must be a number because when I am only a number, I, am no, I no longer have an identity or roots. Then I will be the perfect slave at the mercy of financial speculators, she added. Maloney stated that her opposition to serving as the perfect slave at the mercy of financial speculators is why we inspire so much fear. Maloney vowed to defend the value of the human being, stressing that each of us has a unique genetic code that is unrepeatable. That is sacred. We will defend it. We will defend God, family, and country, these things that dis disgust people so much, Maloney said. And so, and so you, you, by now you get a feel of why she's a threat to the left and to the, the globalist elite, because she doesn't want to go along with their program. She doesn't want to be made into just a number and to just another consumer you know she just doesn't want to be just another character in an aldous huxley novel okay and so she um and her party believe that in individuality and that you're you're not just a number you're not just a consumer that you're a a person and so she wants to, I guess, um, kind of reinforce the, the idea of personhood in society. She wants to re-inculcate that into uh, Italian society as a, a traditionalist value. Um, the Italian politician cited the defense of God, family, and country as necessary to defend our freedom and ensure that we will never be slaves and simple consumers at the mercy of financial speculators. She shared a quote from G.K. Chesterton predicting that fires will be kindled to testify that two and two make four and that swords will be drawn to prove that leaves are green in summer, declaring that time has arrived. And so I guess Chesterton was kind of, um, his words kind of echo the words of Orwell in uh, 1984, where, where um, 
Orwell's character, um, Winston, um, was forced to admit that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Um, he not only had to say it, he had to actually believe it. And so that's kind of um, what G.K. Chesterton was, was saying. And uh, basically denying the, the truth before your, your eyes. And that is a uh, postmodernist thing, is this this deconstruction of objective truth and objective reality in the uh, postmodernist society in their worldview they break everything down and they basically destroy any idea of objective reality and make everything subjective so that when everything is subjective now you can Put your feelings behind it, okay? Whether it's when, it's ob when something is objective, okay, you are using your rationality, okay? You're using logic to judge what is reality and base base what your your truth is based upon that reality. In uh, postmodernism, they strive to destroy that and so now you have a reality that is subjective basically and of course reality can be whatever you feel it is and so you know if there's no objective morality or or reality then everything is what you you feel it to be or what you want it to be and so there's no longer that um objective notion of this is right and this is wrong or this is real and this is not real or this is fact and this is opinion they want to blur those lines so now you can send, as I mentioned they can introduce um, feelings into people um, trying to create their own reality and so I think that's kind of a long-winded way of saying what Chesterton was saying here. Um, then she, um, in a speech in Florida, she mentioned that everything it, that we stand for, that they stand for, is under attack. So she made a, uh, a speech in CPAC in Florida where she talked about the common conservative values between Americans and Italians. Uh, she, so she says, our individual freedom is under attack. Our rights are under attack. She said, the sovereignty of our nation is under attack. The prosperity and well-being of our families are under attack. The education of our children is under attack. Most people, people understand that in this age, the only way of being rebels is to preserve what we are. Maloney insisted the only way to of being rebels is to be conservatives. So that is the paradoxical nature of being a conservative here in the 21st century is you're actually now part of the counterculture where at least for most of our lifetimes the counterculture has always come from the left. 
you know, they've always been, you know, the ones railing against the man. Well, now they are the man. And so Maloney here in her speech is pointing this out. Maloney de declared, We're not going to care about the labels they stick upon us and maintain so-called progressives use the power and arrogance of their mainstream media to force their political opponents to change to be allowed into their inner circles so she's saying that that you know either you're with us or against us that's the the thought process of the left and if you want to be you know accepted into society um, then you have to think and do X, Y, and Z. This is coming from, this is, you know, you have to um, toe the line of the leftist narrative. And so she talks about this. And uh, she goes on, uh, well, the article goes on to talk about how she is also there in Italy, there's also an immigration problem, uh, an illegal immigrant problem, where people come in and, of course, they, they don't have, you know, they don't fit into Italian culture, and maybe they don't speak Italian, they don't, um, you know, the same problems that um, we conservatives point out here is the, you know, when you have too many illegal immigrants, or too, too many immigrants at one time, more than the the nation can handle more than society can handle then you have breakdowns and you have problems and she's she's talking about the the same things and then she um, goes on so she says in this in this speech uh, the woke ideology destroying the foundations of the traditional family attacking life insulting religion, changing words, and even imposing new graphic signs. And so, apparently, you know, uh, there's some signs in, that were in Italian, now they have to be made graphic so that other people in, from other nations can read them. And so, just to finish off the article, it says another speech featured Maloney declaring yes to the natural family, no to the LGBT lobby, yes to sexual identity, no to gender ideology, yes to the cultural life, no to the abyss of death, no to the violence of Islam, yes to safer borders, no to mass immigration, yes to work for our people and so there you have it um so that little that i think that statement of hers more than any others kind of explains why the left is so desperate for us to believe that she is a fascist she's something from the far right that she's the next incarnation of benito Mussolini. Um, because she goes against everything that the globalist elite, uh, that the left, um, wants. And so if you really think about it, it's not the authoritarianism that 
they're worried about. I think if they're being intellectually honest, they know that she's not going to have the squadrisi uh, breaking down people's doors in the middle of nights and dragging people out of their homes like happened in fascist Italy in the 20th century. They know that that's, that's not going to happen, but they're being disingenuous about it. And so they want to create that impression that it could happen. But really, what they're afraid of is just what she's saying. She's afraid that they're going to stop, or she's going to interfere, or slow down their their plans, their globalist agenda, you know, the sort of thing that the WEF, the World Economic Forum, might get involved in, or the World Bank, or any number of globalist organizations. So she wants to put the brakes on a lot of the globalism and a lot of the objectives of the left. And that's what they're really afraid of. They're really afraid of they're not, they're not uh, succeeding with their ideological objectives. So they're not really, I don't think, they're really in their hearts of hearts thinking that they're gonna, she's going to have uh, black shirts, kicking down doors and jackboots and imprisoning people. I think they know that, but they want to pretend at the same time they want to pretend that's what's going to happen. But what they're really afraid of is that her, her election, her being in power, is going to interfere with them enacting their agenda. And that's what they're really afraid of. And so when they call her the next coming of Mussolini and a fascist, just know that they're being disingenuous, I, I think. And they're really, as I mentioned, really what they're afraid of. Um, really what she's an enemy of is their ideology. The idea of that, you know, they want to continually change the meaning of words, for instance, like racist and fascist and man. And woman, they want to turn upside down conventional ideas of marriage and the family, and she's against that. And it seems like there's a large populist movement in her country, as well as ours, that is also against it. And actually, there is kind of a wave uh, going through Europe now. It's kind of a a re um, reestablishment of the old order or the traditionalism, the retraditionalist order. And so you see that in countries like uh, Hungary. They just uh, also elected a uh, minister or a leader from the right. Okay, and he was also accused of being fascist. And then also in Sweden, they elected a new right-wing government there. And so now you have, and you've already had, I guess, Eastern Europe, you know, was already kind of Euroskeptic. And then Hungary, uh, as opposed to Central Europe or Eastern Europe, you know, they've, they've already been wary. They've already had, you know, they already have a history of, kind of right-wing philosophy or ideology um, because a lot of these were communist countries 
in the old Soviet Union era. Um, so Hungary was communist. They weren't in the Soviet bloc, but they were communist. And so they know the evils of communism and socialism. They don't want to go back. And some of them are trying very hard to keep from repeating the mistakes of the past, you know, going socialist and, and things like that. So, again, it looks like she is, well, she is a Euroskeptic, that she's not really for a strong European government. Um, she says she's not anti-Europe, that she wants uh, Italy to be, I guess, uh, a full member of Europe and participating in trade and everything like that, as the rest of uh, Europe does. But I think like a growing number of Europeans, they're seeing uh, like what happened in Brexit, for instance, is kind of the most extreme example uh, to date, where uh, Britain completely broke off from Europe because they didn't they didn't want to continue to sacrifice their sovereignty as a country. And that's something also that Maloney is for. She doesn't want to sacrifice Italy's sovereignty as a nation to uh, some big nebulous European Union and where the Italians would not have much of a say. They don't have much control over their their destiny and if something happens in the European Union it's very hard for them to change it very hard for um, things to be corrected um, you know if there's some policy that they don't like it's very hard in Europe nowadays to change policies that once enacted in the European Union it's very hard to do anything because um, the bureaucracy is so entrenched and there's so many layers it's just another complete government on top of whatever government they have that's not serving them too well probably already and that's what Britain has concluded and other countries have toyed with the idea of breaking away from the EU and so that's one of the things that the left likes they like the idea of one world government or at least one western world government um, it's, it's kind of ironic they're kind of breaking themselves down into the orwellian uh, sectors of like uh, oceana and east asia and whatnot and they're dividing themselves into the European and the Anglo-Americans and the Asians and so it's kind of ironic um, when you uh, go back and read uh, 1984 about how they they subdivided themselves and that's this is what I think um, what the globalists are trying to to achieve is that there are um, they want to make it so there's no more than three players really um, Anglo-American players the Europeans and the the Asians 
and then maybe you have like Australians as like a minor um, player joining up with one of those. But basically, they're they're trying to cut down the number of sovereign states, and so that is something that you read in about in 1984, where they're talking about the plans for the original plans of Big Brother and the idea of a multi multinational collectivist oligarchy. And so just reading that um, part of 1984, rereading it again, kind of kind of struck me. And there is a part in 1984 where they, they talk about where the, um, protagonist um, Winston is um, he's being kind of trapped and in, entrapped into uh, doing a thought crime that they can prosecute him for the Ingsoc or the Big Brother people and so if you read the book I mean spoiler alert um, so that's what happens and at one point he's exposed to what seems to be the actual uh, philosophy the original philosophy of Ingsoc or the Big Brother. And so that can be our segue into the dystopic journal portion of the podcast. And so I was looking recently, um, started to go through uh, 1984 again, and it really struck me because I just happened to open up on this page. <clears throat> It's where Winston is given this book. It's uh, it's supposed to it's supposed to be this this new newspeak, you know, the new dictionary of newspeak. But it's actually the original. It seems to be the original uh, treatise of the Insoc regime or the the Big Brother philosophy. And so it struck me right away because the title of it. And for those of you who've read the book, you know that Goldstein is like this character. He's this larger in life character. He's the enemy that everybody, you know, they talk, they do their two minutes of hate every day. And most of the focus is usually on this person who apparently was a real person at one time and, and was blown up into a mythological character. Uh, he is kind of the, I guess, the eternal uh, scapegoat in 1984. The, he's the eternal ultimate enemy of, of the Insoc in 1984, Big Brother. So he's the scapegoat. And whenever anybody is caught for a, a thought crime, well, they get interrogated and they're imprisoned and they're brainwashed. And they usually come out saying that, you know, I was under the influence of Goldstein or the, the agents of Goldstein made me do it. And that's their excuse. And so I'm going to read you a little bit. So uh, forgive my um, head being in the book here. Um, but he's given the book, the actual treatise on the real deal of, of Big Brother here, and it was called The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism by Emmanuel Goldstein. 
And that that right there, that title kind of really struck me because, you know, oligarchy is not a word that at least I've heard too much until just recently, in recent years, when we talk about, we start talking about, uh, in particular, the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and what he wants to do and how their aim is uh, to create an oligarchy, the the system of government by which the uh, leaders of various industries control, uh, have effective control of your life, even more so than the actual elected government or any kind of uh, any kind of government. You know, an oligarchy is a collection of interest. Um, could be the energy oligarchy or the the communications oligarchy or the entertainment oligarchy. You know, whatever the banking industry could be an example. And so the idea is, uh, well, the fear is, um, with the Great Reset and everything, with uh, the World Economic Forum in particular, is that they want to give power to these oligarchs, that a few select heads of businesses will basically run everything. And even though they already have tremendous influence over our lives, it'll be more, I guess, formalized, um, their control. And that's what things like ESG and, and such is about. And so I was kind of really struck because I hadn't read this in a while. And I don't think it comes up actually in the movie, which I've seen more recently, when it uses the term uh, oligarchical collectivism. And is that not an apt description of what we're seeing today? Oligarchical collectivism where everybody... Is supposed to subsume their own individual needs to the needs of the collective. All right, the the needs of the one are subservient to the needs of the many. So that's the collective's angle, and of course, as I mentioned, um, you have many different collectivist ideologies like socialism. Uh, communism and fascism, they're all collectivist ideologies of one sort of another. And of course, what seems to be happening in real life, which echoes what's happening in the book apparently, is you have this creation of a collectivist oligarchy. And so that's what he's talking about now. And it's a... Uh, is by Emmanuel Goldstein, the fictitious, again, the catch-all um, scapegoat for Big Brother. And so, chapter one of this fictitious book, so it's a little bit meta here. Uh, Ignorance is strength. Throughout recorded time, and probably since the end of the Neolithic Age, there have been three kinds of people in the world the high, the middle, and the low. They have been subdivided in many ways. They have borne countless different names and their relative numbers, as well as their attitude toward one another, have varied from age to age. But the essential structure of society has never altered. Even after enormous upheavals and seemingly irrevocable changes, the same pattern has always reasserted itself. Just as a gyroscope will always return to equilibrium, 
however far it is pushed one way or the other. The aims of the three groups are entirely irreconcilable. And so what Goldstein apparently is, uh, it's not clear, I think, if, I'm, uh, if this is actually Goldstein or is this just something that is put out there, you know, uh, to lure people like Winston in to believing it. But I, my take is, again, not having read the entire book recently, um, is that this is the real thing. And that this is kind of like um, the Communist Manifesto for this Ingsoc or, you know, society, this Big Brother society in 1984. And... This goes on, and this is again from the book within the book, The uh, Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism. Uh, he skips to chapter 3 in the book, uh, and that says, I'm just going to read a little bit of it, because it gives an actual you know chapter link chapter, and it says, The splitting up of the world into three great superstates was an event which could being and and indeed was foreseen before the middle of the 20th century where the absorption of Europe by Russia and the British Empire by the United States two of the three existing powers Eurasia and Oceania were already effectively in being the third East Asia only emerged as a distinct unit after another decade of confused fighting and so this pretty much accurately re reflects uh what's going on today in today's world so you have an uh anglo-american alliance and i just mentioned that britain broke off of europe so now they're more uh in line or you know have the availability to do more with the United States on their own. They don't need the permission of Europe anymore. So you have uh, Europe and America on one side, and then you have a Europe which has been absorbed by Russia. Uh, it would have been the Soviet Union at the time, but they were, they're calling it Russia. And that's also interesting because Russia, you have uh, you know invaded Ukraine, it's invaded Georgia, you know, it's set up a satellite state with Belarus, and it's going to, it's trying to influence uh, things, it's trying to control the politics of many different countries, you know, the old Soviet Union, all the stands, um, also countries like Moldova, and uh, as I mentioned, Belarus too, is their main ally. And so you, you can see that already occurring. And so it's kind of scary how accurately or well predicted what was going on um, and how the world was going to, to be divided. And of course, you have China is the other major power, the other super, ten, super uh, power contender is China. And they have their own influence. And of course, China is trying to uh, throw its weight around with countries like the Philippines and Japan and even Australia and so they are throwing their weight around 
And so it's interesting how he saw these lines, these political fault lines being developed even in the mid 20th century when, when he wrote uh, 1984. So it's very interesting how things have played out much along the lines as he predicted. And of course now the struggle for, you know, in the real world of uh, Europe is to resist uh, Russia, you know, resist some sort of uh, becoming a vassal of Russia because now Russia has, you know, they're controlling the heat. You know, they have, you know, the the, the pipelines, the Nord Stream pipeline pipelines were just bombed. I would suspect, even though there's not really sufficient proof of anybody yet, but my money would be on Russia having um, sabotaged their pipeline basically in an attempt to, you know, it's the die of cast, the die is cast, they've crossed the Rubicon, there's no turning back. And also, while I'm thinking of it, Russia would have, because they said, people say, well, why would Russia sabotage their own pipeline? And I know I'm getting off on attention here, but I think this is important. Um, why would they sabotage their own pipeline it's because well what's going on right now with regards to the russo-ukrainian war uh um ukraine has just launched a pretty successful counterattack, and they take taken back a lot of land um this has gone far worse than what russia had originally planned they originally thought they would roll right in take over the country and reach some sort of political settlements where all of the eastern states, the oblasts, and of Crimea, and that would be solidified. And so they're trying to solidify their rule over eastern Ukraine. But, of course, Ukraine has something to say about that, and they're fighting back. And also there's terrible morale. Um, Putin has been using conscripts um he's mobilizing the reserves of russia and so he seems to be going for an all or nothing thing and i think that's one reason that he may have sabotaged his own pipeline would be to use you know what they call a false flag operation you know he wants a casus belli that he can say, you know, those people did it, the Europeans or the Americans did it, or the, um, or the Ukrainians did it, which basically be the same thing as the Europeans. But he wants this to use the pipeline bombings as a casus belli, and he wants to rally Russians behind this and say, look, we have to get at this, you know. So for him, I think he sees it as the sinking of the Lusitania or the Gulf of Tonkin um, incident or something in that nature where it gives them people, the people to rally behind him. Because right now he has a problem. You know, he has tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people fleeing Russia. They're going to places like Kazakhstan or Georgia uh, because they fear 
especially the young people, they fear uh, being drafted into the army, into the war um, that they have no interest in. And so in that respect, that's a little bit like Vietnam for the United States, where the big problem with Vietnam is that really fueled the, the anti-Vietnam movement, I think, was the draft and sending people who really didn't want to be there weren't they didn't sign up for the army or the navy or whatever they didn't want to be there they, they sent to into uh fighting a conflict that they didn't understand or didn't want to take part in. and so the, you have the same thing happen now in russia where a lot of people they see this conflict they're not really interested in fighting the ukrainians they're not particularly not interesting in dying for any part of Ukraine. And so they're leaving Russia for uh, places like Kazakhstan and Georgia. And they're apparently leaving by tens, if not hundreds of thousands. And so I think this precipitated an action on the part of Putin. And this is my speculation. Um, not really a lot to... We don't know either way, really. We don't have evidence too much either way what happened. But my my own personal theory, could be wrong, but, you know, we'll see, is that this is just a causus belli, uh, a raison d'etre for Russia going into war, to for people, Russians, to rally around, um, giving them a reason to join and volunteer for the army. You know, they want this to be like a Pearl Harbor event for them, where it's kind of like the last straw. And every, you know, after Pearl Harbor, you know, you couldn't fit, you know, a single more American into the the recruiting station. Every, You know, lots of Americans after Pearl Harbor um, joined the Army, volunteered for the Army. And that's what Putin, I think, is trying to do here. So I think... He has uh, created, again, this is my speculation, he has created his own uh, singular Lusitania or his own uh, Pearl Harbor event that people can rally around. And so that's what I think. So, it, but anyway, getting back to Orwell, it's interesting what's going on. And you have the, the wars and... You have this perpetual war, perpetual state of warfare in 1984 between the three major powers. And it doesn't matter who's fighting whom, you know, you have shifting alliances uh, all the time. Uh, basically, if I remember correctly, in the book, he's, he, he's told that the purpose of war is war. It's, it's the destruction of the people. It gives the people something to do, you know, it provides work like, you know, we provided work in munitions factories in World War II. Uh, so it's something to keep the people busy, keep their minds off of how bad things are. And also provides a, an, uh, a pretty convenient excuse for things being bad, for there being shortages. Any, anytime there's a shortage of anything, they can blame it on the war. You know, you're sacrificing for the war effort, kind of like what people did in World War II. You know, they collected 
uh, cans and bottles and use, you know, for steel, provide steel and aluminum for the war effort. That was like considered their patriotic duty. And so people were driven by patriotism to do things like that, make sacrifices. And so they're all more willing to make sacrifices uh, if, if they think that their existence is on the line, if there is some sort of existential threat to their existence, it makes them more amiable to making sacrifices. And so that's what's going on between the powers of, uh, in 1984, of uh, you know, it's, uh, East Asia, Oceania, and Eurasia. As I mentioned, it's a professional perpetual cycle of war and the purpose of the war basically is war itself it's a it's a means to an end uh, it's its own purpose and so it's very interesting to see those parallels now like you have the uh, like I said the situation in uh, Ukraine and in Russia and you have this reason to rally the people and to keep people off their minds off of what their hardships are. It's interesting also to see now that the people of Europe are going to have uh, huge hardship, particularly in Germany and Northern Europe, um, meeting their energy needs. And, you know, they, they had their natural gas supply cut off because they were over-reliant on Russian energy, as President Trump pointed out. Uh, he was laughed at at the time, but it turns out to be true. Um, you know, the Germans in particular let, let themselves be particularly vulnerable to exploitation and the leverage of the, the uh, Russian influence of, you know, for their oil. They became over-dependent. And now that oil has been, natural gas has been cut off. And now even any chance of that, even if they want to say, okay, we give up or we'll, we can reach an accommodation, no accommodation can be reached. So, again, so the bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines, uh, whoever did it, means that they can, know, you know, it's cutting off a means to... Um, uh, create talk about peace and so you know you you're it's easy to talk about war and to wage war when you're not freezing to death then all of a sudden the winter comes and you're freezing out and people are dying uh, people it becomes a lot easier to uh, talk peace under these circumstances and it's it's also the same for the Russians um, you know, they have, you know, the Russian people in general have, have suffered, although apparently not as much as the Europeans have, but then we don't know for sure everything that's going on. But anyway, you know, it's been hard on both sides, obviously, and the Ukrainians, of course, get the worst of it. But as you can see, the, the Germans in particular are in for a very harsh winter and winter is coming. And there's no, there's not going to be a pipeline to be turned back on. There's, there's not going to be that turning on of the pipeline restoration of the natural gas as a bargaining chip. 
And so that means, I think, that the idea of that whole situation is that the die is cast and that they're committed. Both sides are committed and one side is going to have to win if, if they want their their uh, energy back. And even if the Europeans win, even if the Ukrainians win, you know, military via, uh, victory, they won't have the gas pipeline. Now, of course, they can still get gas, you know, through, you know, via rail shipments and via uh, uh, sea shipments and via um, overland uh, trucks and whatnot. But the the pipeline made it uh, easier, a lot easier to bring gas into Europe. But anyhow, they, they did get along. They get, did manage to get gas from uh, Russia before the, the pipeline. But this makes it all the harder. And so it, it takes away a possible bargaining chip, something that that can be requested. It's like, okay, we'll stop. You you reactivate the, the pipeline, or we'll stop providing aid. We'll you if you uh, we'll support um, uh, the Crimea being seceded or or something like something in that nature. Um, that that prevents any kind of peace talks, and I think that's the idea here. And again, the objective of the war seems to be the war itself. You know, giving people something to do, giving them an enemy besides their own uh, incompetent governments, uh, domestic incompetent uh, domestic governments. You know, they're giving them an, an existential threat, whether it's real or perceived. And it's the same thing for both sides, both for the Russians and for the Europeans and for the United States, is to, to give people an enemy. And so I think uh, Orwell was very perceptive when he talked about this in um, 1984 in his chapter, his meta chapter called World uh, War is Peace. And so it's very interesting. I'm going to do a lot of focus, um, as I can tell. You know, we spent the last couple months talking a lot of Ayn Rand and Alice Shrugged. And now I think we're going to focus a little bit on that, at least for the dystopic journal. And of course, Liberty Relearned, the podcast itself, is going to be dedicated to um, whatever the issue, whatever the current event issues, or some... In the, in the absence of any, you know, huge news like the the election of the Italian Prime Minister uh, or the, pipe, the pipeline bombing, um, we're going to talk about general precepts of conservatism and libertarianism, um, just, as, just as we have done. But on the uh, dystopic journal side, probably expect a, a little bit more Orwell. And I really, I'm interested interesting on, interested in focusing on really this uh, theory and practice of oligarchical collectivism because it's, like I said, I saw it and uh, it really caught my eye, particularly now 
Um, you know, you never really thought of collectivism or, well, I let, collectivism, yes, but oligarchies, no. Not until very recently, at least I haven't. So that really caught my eye. Maybe if you're, if you recently read the book, maybe that caught your eye too, particularly if you haven't read it in a long time. And you're seeing that words, and now they're, they have different meanings now. Maybe when you first read the book in high school or in college. So anyhow, uh, thanks for watching and listening. And please follow Liberty Relearned online at libertyrelearned.com and uh, at LR Podcast on Getter and follow me, JP Mac, on Parlor and Liberty Relearned on Facebook. And please like and subscribe if you're watching this on either Spotify or on uh, Rumble. Please like and subscribe. And that way you know when the next episode is going to come out. And you can stay on top of things on, you know, if this is of interest to you. And so a couple things just to wrap up here. Um, you have a uh, left-wing media in panic over the election of Georgia Maloney. They'll say because she's a fascist, but really it's because she's going to thwart their plans and their intentions for globalism and things of that nature. So it'll be interesting to see, particularly if, you know, in a few years time, uh, we come back and, you know, there's no black shirts running around Italy, kicking down doors and jackboots. What's the left going to say? You know, it's kind of like, you know, when I mentioned last week about Donald Trump, you know, he had four years if he was a fascist why didn't he get around to doing anything very fascist he didn't get around to uh kicking down people's doors persecuting political enemies now the uh present present regime under biden they've got around it in less than two years they've already um gone to their political enemies they've already gone to their uh ideological enemies they just uh, ran a search warrant on this pro-life, I think, uh, activist uh, who apparently was cooperating with the FBI at the time, but they decided to conduct a search warrant on his property nonetheless. Um, didn't really get into much, but maybe we'll talk about that next week. So again, thank you for watching and listening, libertyrelearn.com. And the and or the dystopic journal, JP Max dystopic journal on particularly on Rumble and Spotify. Um, but also you you can read you can continue to hear the audio version of the uh, dystopic journal um, along with where wherever you're seeing this, wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast, you'll hear the dystopic journal too. Uh, so thank you. And until next week, stay healthy, happy, and free.